Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, it's the final cluster of verses in this uh, study of this little prophet, prophetic book, three back from the end of the Old Testament, so it's the third final book, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there today. We're studying the overall theme of consecration. We want to consecrate our lives to the Lord. Now, if you look around our world, if you look around at what's happening, especially in our nation, I think we would all agree that there's some crazy things happening today. There were some crazy things that happened in our nation this week. We saw, I saw with my own eyes, ab- absolute blatant lies being concocted by people in high office in our country, by a police chief by a municipal mayor, absolute blatant lies. This is not to say that all politicians are bad or all police officers are bad or all municipal officials are bad. We're not saying that at all. There's bad pastors and there's good pastors. There's bad plumbers and there's good plumbers. And there's bad politicians and there's good politicians. So we've seen absolute blatant lies. You see the video footage of what's going on in Ottawa. And then over here, you have a narrative that is completely disjoined from it. So absolute lies, millions of dollars almost, almost stolen from people that simply want their liberty back after two years. Fortunately, with public pressure, they're promising to refund it now. And you look at these things and folks, it's, it's as clear as day now. It's as clear as day. Many of us saw this to be the case two years ago. We're not fighting a virus. If you still believe that, I'm sorry, but you're an absolute fool. We're not fighting a virus. We're fighting against status totalitarianism. What you have is you have godless people that know they have to be enslaved to something. So they're actually out, many of the counter protesters are out there protesting in favor of slavery. They want to be enslaved. Why? Because deep in the human heart, you know, everybody knows you're going to serve something. You're going to serve someone. And they don't want to serve the true and living God who grants us freedom to do good. They want to serve the state that is more than willing to grant you freedom, think Bill C4, to do evil. So we know this to be the case. The world has dropped its mask, pardon the pun, and is being very clear that they hate God. We have a disease of godlessness across our nation, and they they want to be ruled by the state. Now, it's easy when you look at what's going on in the world to become discouraged. You ever experience a little twinge of discouragement? Maybe feel a little dejected, And you wonder, how on earth could this happen? And where are things going? Well, let's just be reminded that the world existed before you and I were born. We know that, right? And this isn't the first time in history that liars have ruled nations. It's not the first time that law enforcement agencies have been politicized or medical institutions have been politicized or honest people have been accused of wrongdoing. It's happened frequently, in fact, throughout history. It just happens to be our turn. Question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond to it? 
And by the way, unless Jesus comes back tonight, tomorrow or next week, it's gonna happen again. This is the cycles that we, we should expect. There's gonna be more of this, even if we get out of this crisis, there's gonna be more of this until Jesus returns. Well, Haggai is a super encouraging message because as we finish up this book, what we're gonna be reminded of is the victory of God. We're gonna be reminded that God will be victorious over his enemies and he will use his people to represent his values and his rule. So this is what we're gonna learn. Now, you know that we've been studying Haggai and there's several sermons that Haggai delivers to the people. They've come to the building site. They've been spending a lot of time rebuilding their houses. God's like, hey, you need to take care of the temple. So they obeyed, they repented, they showed up, started clearing the rubble, started rebuilding the temple. And every once in a while, Haggai shows up on the construction site and he delivers a timely message. Well, today his sermon is directed to one individual, not to the people as a whole, but it's directed to the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, to Zerubbabel. But even though the sermon is written to one man, there's a lot of truth in it that we can all benefit from. So join me in Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne, notice it's singular, of kingdoms. Notice it's plural. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down. Sounds a bit like what God did when they passed through the Red Sea. Everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And that's the end of the book. So what is it that God is trying to communicate to his people through this final sermon directed to Zerubbabel? Well, as I've mentioned already, it is a message directed to the royal heir apparent. Zerubbabel, had the nation not been taken off into captivity, would have been the present tense king of Judah. He was a descendant of David, and he would become the ninth great-grandfather of Jesus Christ, as reckoned through his father, Joseph. The Bible says in this passage, I am about. Now, if you study biblical history, all this cataclysmic judgment that God says he's going to pour out on the nations and upon the godless king of Medo-Persia, you'll know that it didn't happen the next day. It didn't happen the next week. It didn't happen the next month didn't happen the next year. So did God lie? God says, I'm about to judge him. And you're like, okay, an hour from now? And an hour goes by and you're like, oh, maybe he meant a week. Maybe a couple months. Lord, did you forget? Here's what we need to understand about God. When God says, I am about to do something, he doesn't necessarily measure time the way that we measure time. Ultimately, he did fulfill his promises and this nation collapsed, and the nation that came after that, the global superpower that came after that collapsed. 
But like so many prophetic events that are mentioned in scripture, there, is an, there are immediate results at times, but sometimes there are long-term results. Sometimes it takes a while by our reckoning for God to fulfill his promises or his prophetic utterances. And this is why as Christians, time and time again in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, we are called to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We know ultimately what God's going to do. We know who wins. We know who wins, right? But we got to wait. And our timing is not necessarily God's timing. Now, if you are anything like me, to our shame, we don't like to wait. We would like God to fix our problems yesterday, not tomorrow, <laughs> yesterday. We would like God to pull down tyrant rulers yesterday, not 10 years from now, yesterday. We would like God to bring about revival and reform yesterday. We would like God to heal us yesterday. We would like God to save our relatives yesterday. We don't like to wait. We lack patience. We want things to happen quick. And especially in the West, especially in a culture where we get upset waiting for everything. It's like, I've been in the drive-thru for three and a half minutes. Where's my coffee? I'm going to put a negative Google review up. We don't like to wait. We call for a pizza. It's like, it's been 45 minutes. I'm going to sue the company. Everything's at our fingertips. We can hop on our banking. We can go to a store and buy what we want. We can order products on Amazon. Sometimes they're at our doorstep within like 12 hours. I ordered a book once. It was like three or four in the afternoon and it was at the church here at like 8 a.m. It's like, how'd that happen? This is our culture. So when it comes to spiritual matters and we have to wait, nobody likes to wait. But there are many blessings to waiting upon the Lord. It develops perseverance. In fact, think about it. By definition, you have to wait in order to persevere. You can't possibly persevere if everything's just given to you in the moment. It develops our faith. It helps us to trust in God. Waiting is part of our worship. Many of the things we sing in our worship songs declare what has happened, but much of it also declares what will happen. We sing words of hope. We reflect upon the future. We remind one another of our eternal perspective. So waiting upon the Lord is one of God's choice tools to sanctify us. And somehow we have to get to a point in our spiritual lives where we are comfortable because we trust in God with waiting. Grates against our fleshly desires. We want it now. We're like, Lord, we're going to wait because we see through the eyes of faith, you're developing patience, perseverance. You're expanding our faith. You're increasing our worship. You're giving us an eternal perspective. So we wait upon the Lord. In verse 22, God declares that he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. So the singular throne and the plural reference to kingdoms refers to the Persian king 
who at the time was the global superpower. So at any point in human history, there's pretty much always been one nation that's risen above the rest. Whether it was Egypt, whether it was Assyria or Babylon, or the Medes and the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, or right now, arguably the United States, there's always one kingdom that distinguishes itself above others. And you could say the leader of that kingdom is sort of like the king of kings. In fact, Jesus is called the king of kings, but that language is borrowed from the Mesopotamians before him, men like Sargon the Great. Sargon called himself the king of kings because he was ruling the known world at the time in Mesopotamia. He conquered everybody that tried to take him out. So he's the king of kings. And when the language of the text says that God's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, what he's saying here is, I'm not going to just target the lesser kings, the lesser magistrates. I have the power to take off the throne the most powerful man on earth. That's what my power's like. The world superpower, like all kings before him, Darius wouldn't last. Alexander the Great didn't last. The Ptolemies didn't last. The Caesars didn't last. There's no ruler on planet Earth that has ever ruled that has outlasted God. Ultimately, God will overthrow even the throne of kingdoms. So when we look at some of the superpowers of this earth, it can be kind of intimidating. We're like, man, look at, look at the power some of these people wield. How can we possibly expect any change to take place when we have such tyrannical, power-hungry rulers in high office? Don't worry about it. God can take them all out. And the neat thing about God is when he takes them out, he gets more glory for it because we're like, wow, we weren't expecting that. Like, if you're a bull rider and you want to impress your audience, you don't come riding out of the gates on a scrawny little Jersey steer. You pick like the biggest, baddest bull you can find because when you conquer it, you get a lot more claps, you get a lot more glory, you get a lot bigger trophies, you get a lot bigger endorsements. You demonstrate your skill, your power. The more impressive the foe, the more impressive the victory. And in the same way, the more impressive the foe, the more impressive the victory is when God takes these kings of kings and pulls them off their throne. God can take even the big guys down, the Pharaohs, the Nebuchadnezzars, the Cyruses, the Dariuses. He can take them all down and he can take all the kings and prime ministers and presidents of our current world order down like that as well. And eventually folks, he will, he will. Every age has their godless leaders and they can do much, much damage, much damage. Our own nation is being governed by a flagrant liar, a flagrant godless liar. And like the Bonhoeffers before us, it's our duty to call them out. Flagrant liar. You're not even good at hiding your lies. But know this, the judgment of God will be poured out on the wicked. 
Now, this is sad because we love people, but it's also hope-filled because we love God. So when we hear the word judgment, God judging people, it's sort of the ultimate mixed emotions. Because we love people, like, man, that's sad. I'd rather this person repent and come to faith in Christ. But because we love God and we stand for the holiness of God, we also have hope and perspective on life. Ultimately, God will judge such men as he did past kings. And, a, and, and every magistrate, every lesser magistrate, every pastor, every police officer, every mayor, every counselor, every voter that supports and stands with these tyrants will also be subject to the judgment of God. Every tyrant will be held to account. So never side with someone who's wrong just because they happen to currently be popular. Don't be on the wrong team. Because eventually, you'll fall with them. We saw this in Nazi Europe, right? Nazi Europe, Hitler through the 30s rose to power, took on increasing prominence, secured the chancellorship for himself, built up a giant army, became sort of the world superpower. I mean, Germany was an impressive nation entering into World War II which is pretty shocking because they got their butts kicked in World War I. But in short order, they rebuilt their military, they rebuilt their nation, and they were a foe to be reckoned with, and they almost won World War II. And you can imagine at the time, if you're a high-ranking German aristocrat, you'd be like, well, who should I side with? Well, I better side with Hitler. I mean, he's going to win the war. He's winning. He's, he's conquered most of Europe. I, I don't want to hang out with the, the Bonhoeffers. I don't want to hang out with the, the dissenters, the, the protesters, the lobbyists. I, I want to hang out with, I want to be on the winning team. So I'm going to side with Hitler because after all, most people in Germany seem to support him. And if most people support him, he must be right, right? This was the mindset. Well, how'd that work out for people that supported him? They were either shot in the battlefield or they were eventually prosecuted. Did you know that up to and including last October, so we're talking October 2021, we were still prosecuting former SS soldiers? Like 80 years after, there was a fellow by the name of Joseph S. They don't give us his last name because there's some legal reason for that. Can't reveal his full identity. But in the newspapers last October, 2021, this man, 100 years old, who was an SS guard when he was 21, almost 80 years after his crimes, was prosecuted. You know, you're, never gonna, you're not going to get away with it. Don't be on the wrong team. Because eventually, God will catch up to you. And if not in this life, through human means to punish you, in the next life, you will pay for the tyranny that you've been complicit in. And one of the interesting mechanisms that God uses to destroy his enemies, listen to this, this is, this is fascinating, and you'll see this in society. One of the interest, most interesting mechanisms that God uses to destroy his enemies is he allows enemies to infight with one another. It says, everyone by the sword of his brother. That's interesting. How was the judgment of God poured out upon the nations? 
It's poured out by allowing tyrants to fight tyrants, to betray tyrants, to turn on each other, to stab each other in the back, to let each other down. The wicked will eventually devour the wicked. Why is this? Why do the godless tend to devour one another? Well, first of all, because when godless people form alliances, they form alliances to give themselves the power to sin. That's why they form alliances. They rub shoulders with people that can advance their agenda, their cause that can help them to advance their tyranny. They're not in it for the good of the country, for the good of their party. Even in party politics, we see this. Parties just quickly turn on themselves, turn on their leaders, turn on some of their stars. You no longer serve our purposes, you're gone. Secondly, godless people don't actually love other people. Love is of God, folks. And unless you're indwelt with the spirit of God, you don't even understand what real love looks like. So when we hear tyrants saying, do the right thing, love your neighbor, it's all smoke and mirrors. Because they don't actually love other people. They're in it for their own good. And so if someone no longer serves their purposes, they'll quickly attack. It's like chickens. They're in the coop together. They're laying eggs together. They're clucking at each other. They're sitting on the roost at night. But if a chicken develops a little sore, a little wound, there's no chicken coming up to him and saying, hey, let me just kind of clean that up for you. Let me kind of cuddle up to you close at night so you don't get cold. They'll start pecking. They'll kill each other. Vicious little creatures. They'll take each other out. They have no love for one another. It's the same with the godless. If you're not filled with the spirit of God, you don't even know what love really is. Third, godless people use other people to get their way. Again, we see this when they quickly discard others that aren't serving their purposes. So the lesson is be careful who you hitch your wagon to. Be careful whose side you're on and then wait for victory because eventually the current cabal will turn in upon itself and it will be a sight to behold. And when God's enemies fall, the passage goes on to tell us that he will take Zerubbabel and he will affirm his rightful status as the king of Israel. He will give him a signet ring, a ring of royalty. He will be acknowledged as the true and rightful Davidic king. Having read that in the passage, it raises a fascinating question. When did this happen? How long after this prophecy from Haggai was Zerubbabel put on the throne of Israel? Anybody know? Never happened. So wait, did God lie? Did God forget? Did God fail to fulfill his promises? In fact, if you understand biblical history, while Zerubbabel became a very respected Leader, Even after his death, he was very respected in some of the later rabbinic writings. He was, he was considered a good and righteous leader. 
and, and people would have understood that he was the royal heir. He, he died before he became king. His son didn't become king. His son didn't become king. His son didn't become king. In fact, aside from a brief period of time between 140 and 37 BC in that intertestamental period between Malachi, the writing of Malachi and the writing of Matthew, except for during that little brief 100-year window when the Hasmoneans, Hasmonean kingdom briefly ruled Judah, Judah didn't even have a king. From the Babylonian exile, an earthly king, up until and including 2022. There's never been a king that has ruled over Israel, certainly not a son of Zerubbabel, except for that brief period of time for about 100 years from 140 to 37 under the Hasmoneans. So did did God lie here? Well, if you understand biblical prophecy, no, God didn't lie. When God prophesies that Zerubbabel would rule Israel, he is referring to the line of Zerubbabel. Again, the Davidic line. The Davidic line was the line from David, right through to who? Jesus Christ, who was both through his earthly mother, a descendant of David, and as reckoned as the son of Joseph, also a descendant of David. So Mary and Joseph were actually distant, distant, distant relatives, both descended from the line of David. So both in his humanity and in his deity and in his genealogy, Jesus was reckoned to be of the line of David. And he becomes the ultimate and final fulfillment of this prophet prophecy, which is given to Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel literally never wore the signet ring, but spiritually Jesus wore the signet ring because he conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered the enemies of God, and he was presented to us in the flesh and in the spirit as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this is why we worship him. Many leaders prior to Jesus would remind us of this promise, would sort of foreshadow this promise, would point to this ultimate promise, Zerubbabel being one of them. But the the prophecy here was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And the people needed to hear this. They just came out of the exile. There was a lot of instability in the culture, but they needed to be reminded that God would bless them with the ruler from the line of Zerubbabel, who was from the line of David. And so they had to wait a little while. Great, 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 great grandfather, Zerubbabel, right down to Jesus Christ. Many, many generations. So when God says, I have chosen you, you'll see that language in the text. What he's referring to is he's chosen the line. He's chosen the line of David to ultimately bring to us the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who would conquer death and conquer Satan and offer to us eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's a wonderful thing. So this passage prophetically reminds the reader, if you've read the rest of scripture, that there is one true king 
and his name is Jesus. There's one true king and his name is Jesus. Fundamentally, that's why we gather to worship. That's a fundamental recognition that everyone must make in their salvation experience, that you're not the king of your own life. You can't save yourself and religion can't save you. There's one king and his name is Jesus and he is the Messiah and savior of the world. And we must surrender and surrender ourselves to him. This is why we fight the fight that we're fighting in the culture wars today. Because we actually believe what the first chapter of Colossians says. There is one king that rules all kings. And while we believe that God has delegated authority to prime ministers and presidents and police officers and mayors and pastors and husbands of homes, and each of us sort of has our role to play, none of us is absolute in our rule. We're all vassal kings, subject kings to the true king of kings and Lord of lords. Christians, brothers and sisters, no matter what happens each day, we don't know what's going to happen today. Anything could happen today. No matter who rises or falls in public office, Jesus Christ will still be on his throne come nightfall. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He outlasts them all. And so we have much reason for hope. We participate in this blessing too because Jesus has adopted us into his royal family. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. There's just some beautiful language here for us to meditate upon. Speaking of the Christian church. But you, speaking of those that have subjected themselves to Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice there's discussion there of our status. We're a chosen race. God had worked primarily with the race, the nation of Israel. Now it transcends all ethnic boundaries. And there is one body of Christ. There is one people of God across the planet. We're a royal priesthood. We are able to commune with God, offer prayers to God, ask him for forgiveness. We're a, royal na- we're a holy nation distinct from the rest. We're a people for his own possession. And we, we're all of this so that we might ascribe to him excellence. So that we might say, we glorify you, God. We love you. We We honor you. We we exalt you. Passages like this, among others in scripture, remind us that we win because he's already won. We're on the right team. We serve the true and living God. Not the the ever-shifting, divisive, lying, conniving, ruler of our nation or any of the the liars that have ruled nations before are ruling other nations in the world. We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm not discouraged. I get angry at times. We don't need to find ourselves in despair. 
because ultimately we know who wins. And he's already won. So if you haven't done so already, make him your Lord. How do you make Christ your Lord? Well, first of all, you need to come to a point in your life where you acknowledge your own sinfulness. Every human being needs to come to a point in their life where they acknowledge their own sinfulness. Yes, it's probably true. The person next to you has sinned more than you have. But every one of us sins. And you don't get to stand before God one day and compare yourself to the person sitting next to you. You will be compared against the absolute perfect standard of God. And all of us will fail. And of ourselves, we'll all fail. Because we've thought things that are sinful. We've said things that are sinful. We've done things that are sinful. We've had bad attitudes. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans tells us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And while we might give each other a break here and there when it comes to sin, oh, that's, that's a little white lie. That's not a big deal. God's not like that. The smallest sin is enough to eternally separate you and me from God for all of eternity. You understand that? The smallest sin is enough to separate us from a holy, holy, holy God for all of eternity. And so, because of our sin, because of our willful rebellion against God, we are damned. We're damned. We are on our way to a Christless eternity. Ultimately, to the lake of fire. Be eternally separated from God in a state of ongoing death. Eternal conscious torment forever and ever and ever. That's how seriously God takes sin. You might not hear that a lot, but it's Bible truth. That's the bad news. The good news is we have Jesus. Jesus Christ condescended into this world. The eternal son of God took on human flesh. This is really, really important theologically. He's both 100% God and he's 100% man. He's 100% God and therefore he's 100% able to forgive your sin. He's 100% man and therefore he's 100% able to die in your place on your behalf. An innocent man who never sinned, he's able to die in your place on your behalf as your substitute so that you can be reconciled to God. The Bible tells us that Jesus came into this world. He was born of a virgin, therefore did not inherit a sin nature from Adam. He became the second Adam, born sinless. He lived among us. He taught us the truth. He called us to surrender ourselves to his kingdom rule. And eventually he was falsely accused and he was nailed to a Roman cross and he was punished for crimes that he never committed. But there was a purpose to all of this. From human perspective, it looked like Jesus had lost. But from a divine perspective, this was all part of God's plan. Because his innocent death, his innocent death was actually a substitutionary death. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for the sins of the world, for the sins of all who would believe. So he died on a cross 
And then he, he was put into a grave because death is ultimately the punishment for sin. But he conquered that too. He rose up from the grave. See how it all fits together? He rose up from the grave, declared his victory over death, sin, and the grave, and then has since offered himself as the substitute, the savior for all who would believe. So if you want to make him your Lord, what you have to do is stop trying to impress your way into God's good books. Fundamentally, it starts with acknowledging your sin, confess it, I'm a sinner, you identify your sin, you repent of your sin, say, I'm, I'm walking away from it, I'm denouncing it, I'm changing my mind about sin, I don't want it anymore, and I want to make the Lord Jesus Christ my Lord and my Savior. And when you cry out to the Lord for forgiveness of sins, and you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, and you believe that he is your Lord and Savior, God and his faithfulness will save you. You will be born again. You will be spiritually made new. And then your job is to, for the rest of your life, seek to conform yourself to his patterns and principles and allow him to rule over you. Yeah, you're going to fail once in a while, maybe more than once in a while. But God will be faithful to you because you haven't earned your salvation. It's freely given to you by God. It's received through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a key word. Don't ever forget this word. Alone. Not faith plus works. Not Jesus plus you. Not belief plus church attendance. These things are good to help sanctify you and make you more like Christ. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And if you put your faith in him and him alone, you will be transformed. You'll become part of his holy nation, his royal priesthood, a chosen race. You'll be part of the people that he has for his own possession. And then you will live your life proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's your mission in a nutshell. That's why we're here. That's why we're here to honor and glorify God. If you understand that you're going to necessarily and inevitably worship him, you are going to want to obey him and you are going to want to serve him with distinction. So I would ask you, are there any distractions in your life? If you're a Christian, are there any distractions in your life that are causing you to not live large for God, not obey him, not worship him, not serve him with distinction. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you, put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and trust him for your salvation today. Consecrate your life to your creator. After the service, service today, we're gonna have a couple people at the front. If you'd like to come up and pray and recommit yourself, to a consecrated life, and you want to do that with someone else, they're available for you. And if we run out of people, we'll bring more people up. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and you want to understand that more, we would encourage you also to come to the front and put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. You will never regret a single moment of your life that is spent dedicated and consecrated to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, 
the victor, the one who has won and the one who will win. So let's live our lives consecrated to him, sold out to him. Let's honor him in thought, word, and deed. 